So we are continuing our studies in 1 Corinthians. And as I prayed, um, that this chapter shows a relationship between truth and love, which is very different from the steady diet of lies that we expose ourselves ever since we were kids. And that lie, of course, is love is primarily the heart's language that the other person is your soulmate or, or whatever foolish things. As foolish as modern definition of what love is, we think that's the truth. We think love is primarily a desire, a feeling, a gut instinct. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, dispels that notion. He says love has to be wrapped in truth. True love is a result of, of understanding the truth of things. So 1 Corinthians 8 is about the relationship between truth and love. And Paul teaches us this within the context of food offered up to idols. So one of the, so like I said a couple of weeks ago, the Corinthian church is a really, not just a new church, they're, fun, they're just filled with new believers. This, the church was founded, I think, around AD 49 or something, like 20 years after Christ was resurrected. So it's really new. And all the converts of this church were once pagans, and they didn't know God, right? And, they, and they, there was no such thing as being raised in a church at the time. So all of them were fresh believers. And being raised in the city of Corinth, a lot of them were once idolaters. A lot of them once practiced idolatry, right? Idolatry is, you know, you know every household worships some form of idols, and they believe these, those idols, if you properly worship them, will bless your life. So all, most of the Corinthian Christians were idol worshippers. And they were because idolatry during the time when Paul wrote, wrote this letter was a very prevalent reality in, in culture. Everyone was idol worshipping. And idol worshipping, especially food being lifted up to idols, was a very common practice. For example... It was so meshed, for example, like let's say someone invited you to dinner. Let's say like if you're single and someone felt bad that you were single and invited you to their home for dinner. And it, and, and it was common practice. Before you serve the food to the guest, they would first, the host would first lift up and off that food to the idol. So when you, you know, when you start to eat meat, you'll notice a few of the meat were extra burnt. And they were extra burnt because they lifted that meat to the idol before serving it to you. So the question is, Corinthians started asking, what do we do? What do we do when we go visit someone's home and someone gives us food, like, you know, idol offer up to food, like food offer up to idol? Do we eat it? Or do we become ungrateful guests and not eat it? Another example is a lot of holiday parties happen in temple idols, like idols of temple of idols. Let's say your holiday party at the end of the year, you will have it not in a museum like some fancy companies do, but let's say your, Christ, your end of the year party is at a temple, idol, te- idol temple. And every food that they serve in the idol temple was offered up to an idol before serving it to you. Are you going to eat it or not? Let's say you have a client, a very important client. You need their business. And yet that client... Um, wants to eat at a fancy restaurant that you know, right, 
the food was first offered up to idols. What do you do? Idolatry was so meshed with cultural practices in Corinth. Not eating it will have, some, will have detrimental effects on your social relationships. So they asked Paul, what do we do about this food? There were two, two camps in Corinth. One camp, like a freshly believer said, if we eat this food that's offered up to idols, we're betraying Christ. We believe in a new God now. And if we eat food offered up to an idol, we are betraying Christ because we live for Christ. Therefore, they, one group says, we should never, we, we sh- Christians should never eat food that were offered up to idols. There were the other group in the church of Corinth called the strong believers. And they thought there was nothing wrong with food lifted up to idols. And Paul is in agreement with these strong believers. What made these believers, how did, they, how did these strong believers justify eating food lifted up to idols? It was based on proper theology. So verse 4, 5, and 6 is basis of their theology. They said, the, the strong believer said, I could eat offer up to idols because number one, there is no God but one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I can eat idols because there is no God but God. All the, all the so-called idols, whether they're idols that people believe in heaven like Zeus or Aphrodite or whatever those Greek gods are, or the gods of earth, emperors or generals or celebrities or whatever, these things that people worship, whether in heaven or on earth, Paul, the strong believer says, they're not real. They're not real gods. These idols don't exist. All these temples people make for these idols, it's rubbish because they're building a temple for something that doesn't exist. Therefore, and so there's one God. God made all things for himself. And two, because idols don't exist, eating this food doesn't matter. Because it came from God anyway, and the idols don't exist anyway. And Paul is in agreement with this camp rather than the first camp. But 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is rebuking the second camp, the people with proper theology. He's not rebuking the people in the first camp who thinks idols still exist. He's not rebuking the weak. He's rebuking the strong. He's rebuking the one with proper theology. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is about. Why? These guys have right theology. I'm so proud of these guys because they know the truth. Why is Paul rebuking them? Paul is rebuking them because even though they think they know the truth, they really don't know it. Paul said, Paul is vegan because even though they claim to know the truth and what they claim to know is right, Paul says, even though you may, you may think you know right things, you really don't know what it means. You really don't know what you really believe in. Just because Paul says, you think you know, it doesn't mean that you really know. That's what verse 2 is about. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He's saying, 
You strong believers, you think you know the truth. But the way you are behaving shows that you really don't know what you claim to know. How are they behaving with this knowledge? This right knowledge they had, rather than using it to edify the church, they were using this knowledge to become prideful. That's what verse 1 is about. This knowledge puffs up. So these strong believers, when they knew the truth, this truth made them arrogant and prideful, which led them not to build the weaker brother, but destroy the weaker brother by criticizing them, by belittling them. You see, Paul's main point in 1 Corinthians 8 is proper knowledge, proper theology has to lead If you really know proper theology, it has to lead you to a certain fruit. But if your knowledge does not lead to a proper fruit, it shows that you don't really know what you claim to know. That's the thing. They may have known these things, but their actions show they really don't know what they claim to know. I'll give you an example. Modern believers, right, do this all the time. Not modern believers, modern people do this all the time. So what modern people do is, if we, we think that if we agree with a certain position, we think that if we have knowledge of a certain position, if we agree with that position, the knowledge and agreement in and of themselves, we think, makes us righteous. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, when the whole Me Too movement started kicking, like, you know, taking place in America, um, there was a New York State Attorney General, the highest lawyer in New York, New York State. And this guy was, he was like, he built his career championing for women's rights. He prosecuted a lot of female abuse crimes where women were victims of abuse. He championed pro-abortion legislation. So he devoted his career defending and championing women's rights. He even wrote pamphlets explaining to abused women what their legal rights were. So the guy built his career taking care of women, fighting for women. But what shocked me about this guy was when the whole Me Too movement began to happen, it it was found out that he mistreated, violently mistreated, four former staff members. So, so when I first saw this news, I was shocked. How can this guy, who built his entire career fighting on behalf of abused women, go around abusing women? He defended them. He talked to a lot of abused women. He wrote articles taking care of them. But he ended up abusing them, abusing four women. How is that possible? In our logical minds, we think it's impossible. How does a man do that? This is Paul's point. Just because you think you know, it doesn't really mean that you know. Just because this guy knew the horrors of female abuse, that knowledge did not transfer to his heart, 
to make his heart conform to the thing that he thought he knew. Just because we think we know what the truth is, just because we agree with what the truth is, it doesn't mean, it doesn't make us people of truth. I'm going to say something, maybe it's going to get me in trouble. So, this week, I don't do a lot of like, social media. I, I just don't think that whatever I have to say is very interesting. So I'm just fascinated by people who think what they think is interesting. Like, I'm just fascinated by them. And this, and, and, but this week, it was like the, my Facebook page was like blowing up with all these people who are outraged by the George Floyd incident. And I was very proud. That's a right response. Being outraged, showing outrage to the injustice that is happening, that happened in Minneapolis, it's a right response, right? It is. In fact, there is something wrong if you feel nothing about this, right? Because we're made in the image of God, we are made to, to be angered and cry out against racism and injustice. And people show their outrage through their various Twitter posts and Facebook posts, and those are all good things. But let's get real here. Just because we show outrage, which we rightfully should, it doesn't make us people who are impossible of racism. Racism at its core, right, is my interest, who I am, is more important than the other person. I have no problem using the other person as a butt of my jokes. I have no problem using the other person for my pleasure. I have no problem using the other person to elevate myself. That, at its core, is the heart of racism. And all different types of sin, that's at its heart. Just because we cry out against racism, it doesn't mean that we have overcome these selfish tendencies inside of us. By all means, fight and make, point out injustice acts, right? By all means, do it. Please do it. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Just because we know racism is wrong, it doesn't mean that our hearts are free from such tendencies. These guys, these guys, the strong Christian guys, were doing what a lot of people do. They thought they knew. They thought they knew there was only one God, everything was made for Him, and everything exists by Him, through, uh, for Him. They thought they knew everything was created through Christ, and everything exists through Christ. They thought they knew about the gospel. They thought they knew about the fact of redemption. But the way they treated the weaker brother shows that they have no idea what they were talking about. In fact, Paul says in verse 2, treating your brother like this, the, the thing that you thought you knew, Maybe it wasn't real. Maybe it was imaginary. That's what verse 2 is about. He's saying, if your actions does not conform to what you claim to know, what you claim to know is fiction, is imaginary. This knowledge that they thought they had, it led to pride. And I'm very familiar with this because when you go to seminary, 
Well, when I went to seminary, first semester, you become very prideful in what you know. You start judging everything based upon what you know. There was a sermon I could listen to where I didn't dissect. There isn't a praise song that I didn't listen to that I didn't dissect. You become prideful with that knowledge. That pride leads to lovelessness. Because pride is opposite of love. That pride leads to lovelessness. The lovelessness leads to criticism and destruction. Criticism and destruction leads to disunity in the body rather than unity. That's what these guys were doing. We see it now, right? I was shocked. Well, the, the thing that I was like, shocked about when the whole George Floyd thing happened, Fox News and CNN agreed. And I go, wow, you thought I was watching the same channel. I was for a brief second. Those two camps agreed. And yet this country is divided. Everyone knows that the racism is wrong. And yet why are we divided? That's the question. Maybe we don't really know the root cause of racism. Paul is saying, if your knowledge leads to pride, lovelessness, destruction, disunity, your knowledge of God is imaginary. You don't know what you're talking about. But Paul is saying, if you're, then how do you know that you truly know God? That's verse 3. Verse 3 is saying, what verse 3 says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. At first, verse 3, if you look at just verse 3, it is just in and of itself, it seems like Paul is making a contrast between knowledge and love. It seems that Paul is saying, well, you know, there's people with knowledge and people with love, and God only cares about people who love him. He seems to make a, like a distinction between knowledge and love. And I see this kind of like, you know, misinformation everywhere, like in a lot of places. Young Christians, especially in college, they think, oh, God doesn't care about my, the Bible knowledge, but God only cares that I love him. I see that all the time. I went to a Christian concert when I was in seminary, and I had dinner with a Christian singer, right, who's going to perform, because, you know, I was super connected, right? So, like, I was having dinner with the Christian artist whom I, whom I came to listen to the show. I remember, this was like a 20-year-old conversation, I remember what that guy said. He says, you know, you know, I don't much know about the Bible, but I know that God loves me, and that's what I want to sing about. And I go, what? He's saying it's, there's love for God is one thing, and the knowledge of the Bible is another. And at, at first observation, that's, we think that's what verse 3 says. That's not what verse 3 says. If you take verse 3 within the context of verse 1, verses 1 and 2, what Paul is saying in verse 3 is this. Proper knowledge of God leads to the love of God. The proper fruit of your genuine knowledge of God is your increase in love for Him. If your knowledge of God does not, at the end, lead you to a more loving relationship with God, you don't know what you're talking about. That's what Paul is saying. And the guy that I, you know, the, the, the best... Um, is an example of this kind of truth, is Moses. So I'm, you know, I'm going through the first five books, the Pentateuch, right? the first five books of the Old Testament, written by Moses. And it depicts, you know, like I'm in Deuteronomy now. And Deuteronomy, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy depicts Moses' relationship with God. 
Moses, more than anyone else at the time, knew who God was. Moses was the first human being that God revealed his name to. God didn't reveal his name to Abraham. God didn't reveal it to anything. Moses was the first guy. God said, this is my name, which is I am. Moses is the guy who had the front, first row seat of the powerful miracles that God can do. Of all the plagues that befell on Egypt. God splitting the Red Sea. God providing the Israelites in the 40 years of desert, that desert wandering. Moses saw the first hand what God can do. Moses was the guy through whom God revealed his law. Moses was the guy who, knew, who wrote God's law. Moses knew God like no one else did. He knew God's name. He knew God's law. He knew God's power. What did this knowledge of Moses, what is all this knowledge, what, is, what did all this knowledge that Moses had about God lead to? It, may, it led to Moses loving God more. Exodus 33, it says, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. If you look at Moses' life, Moses worships God, Moses fights God, Moses pleads with God, Moses sins against God. Moses, you know, it's it's a dynamic relationship. At the end of that dynamic relationship, you know Moses loves God. All his knowledge about God led him to love. That's what Paul is saying in verse 3. Is your knowledge of God leading you to love God? If so, that you know that you truly know the theology that you're purporting to believe in. Our church, more than anything else, we preach the Bible, we study the Bible together. And my sermons are long. I'm so sorry, I'm working on that. I really am. And we study many books of the Bible together. The question I want to ask you is, with all this knowledge about God, have you grown your love? Have you grown in your love for Him? Do you love him more than you did before? Does your heart leap for him? Maybe, maybe like, like Moses, you, you fight with God, you struggle with God, but at the end, is your heart always towards him? Is your heart always bending towards him? Or is your love so cold? If your love for him does not increase, then all the things that you have listened to, all the things that you have studied, Paul is saying, perhaps it is imaginary. Perhaps you don't really know. True knowledge of God always leads to the love of God. And the one who loves God, Paul says, God knows him in verse 3. In verse 3. When you're growing in your love for him, you know that's how you know God knows you. Growing in love for God will lead to your growing in the love for your fellow brothers. That's the remainder of what chapter 8 is about. Chapter 8, Paul is saying to the guys who have the right theology, what are you going to do about the weak brothers whose Conscience is bothered by food lifted up to idols. Conscience is 
your ability to determine right and wrong. That's what conscience is right here in the, within the context of this chapter. Conscience is the, the ability to discern what is right and wrong. And these weak brothers, their conscience, the food being, eating food lifted up to idols bothered them, thought they were wrong. Why? Because like I said before, a lot of them were, like the weak brothers, were fresh Christians. They just got out of idolatry. And the problem of being a fresh Christian just getting out of idolatry is this. They think, they think the idols are still real. So that, when, 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 when verse 7, Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge. What the weak Christians believe, what, what, the weak Christians were lacking the knowledge that there is only one true God and all the other idols were false. They lacked this knowledge. They thought, yes, Yahweh was a true God, but there were all these other little gods. And because they thought they were all these little gods, eating food that is lifted up to them bothered their conscience. They believed they were wrong. So Paul is saying, Paul is instructing, how do you love these weak brothers? How does a person who genuinely loves God treat a weak brother? You treat the weak brother by loving the weak brother. How do you love the weak brother? You love the weak brother by by reminding yourself of truth. The way that a strong believer loves a weak believer, the way that a believer loves anybody, is that it has that, that your love for the brothers have to be tied to truth, have to be tied to facts. Paul is instructing the way you love a weak brother. The strong brother has to remind himself of certain truths, certain facts. The first fact, verse 6, in order for you to love someone, especially a weak brother, the first thing that you need to know, verse 6, yet, let's read, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the very first truth, that we need to be always conscious of when we love a weak brother, when we love anybody, is, number one, there is only one God. And everything is made, everything is made, all things are made by Him, and all things exist for Him. Not only that, there's one God, and, and everything, every, the God the Father made all things, and everything exists for God the Father. And number two, it is through Jesus Christ that everything was created. So Paul is saying, Lord Jesus, through whom we're all, are all things, and through whom we exist. He means, it was through Jesus Christ that all things were created, that human beings exist for. Paul is saying, Everything God the Father created all things. Everything exists for God the Father. But Jesus Christ was the instrument through whom all things were created, through whom human beings were created. Jesus Christ is a blueprint of humanity, of a, of a human being. We, were, we are not made accidents. We were made with a blueprint. And that blueprint is God. I'm listening to a lot of debates. I'm listening to a lot of atheists for these days, right? And, and, and I, don't, I don't know, my mind goes there. The biggest difference between Christians and atheists is this. Christians believe there is a reality that is outside of ourselves, and that reality is God. 
And that reality called God is a sentient being, which means he feels, he perceives, he thinks, he moves. This sentient being is the basis of all reality, and this sentient being gets involved in human affairs. And the greatest way he gets he involved in human affairs by maintaining, sustaining life to all things, but especially to the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Unbelievers believe human beings are, are just random, random accidents. That all we are, according to, according to Sam Harris, the atheist Sam Harris says, all we are is just neurons firing in our brains. There is no absolute truth outside of ourselves. All we are are just closed systems. But Christians believe everything was made by God, everything exists for God, all things were made through Christ, and we exist through Christ. That is the first truth that has to be the basis of all love. Who God is. The basis of all our love has to be built on this foundational fact. That God created all human beings, God through Jesus Christ, and therefore every human being has value. The second truth that Paul wants them to focus on, in verse 8, food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do eat. What he means by this is this. He says, you don't get closer to God by eating this food and you don't get further to God. You don't get further to God by eating this food and you don't get closer to God by not eating this fruit. Not eating this food. Paul is basically saying, what you do on the outside does not change how close and far you are from God. What determines how close and far you are from God? It is the work of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we draw near to God. Christianity is not saying we've got to do certain things to get closer to God. That's what these weak believers are thinking. These weak believers are thinking that if we don't eat this food, then we get closer to God. But if we, don't, but if we eat this food, we're going farther away from God. Paul is saying that's not true. What you do, it doesn't determine how close and how far you are from God. What determines your proximity to God is Jesus Christ, His righteousness. We need to know that all things exist for God through Christ. And we need to know that we can only draw close to God through Jesus Christ. There are many people, right, I think, who are similar to these weak Christians. These were Christians, like I said, thought what they do with this food determines their proximity to God. And I think there are many Christians in this world who have similar mindsets. Maybe they think, right? Maybe their thinking is not if I eat food or don't eat food, that's going to determine my proximity to God. But maybe they think religious services. If I attend church more regularly, that makes me closer to God. If I don't go to church, that makes me far from God. If I do quiet times, that makes me closer to God. If I don't do quiet times, that makes me far from God. We think what we do determines how, how close or far we are from God. Certainly, when, certainly, a person who does quiet time more regularly becomes more aware of the presence of God, and that's true. But doing and not doing quiet time does not determine your position, how close you are to God. Do you understand? Doing certain things makes you see God clearer, and that's true. 
But your ultimate position of how far you are away from God is not determined by our actions. It is determined by the gospel. The only way that we are close to God, the only way that we can see God is because Christ has redeemed us. Christ has made us for himself. This is another foundational fact, ingredient that is necessary to loving people. Fact number three that they need to be mindful of. The weak brothers are for those whom Christ died for. Paul is telling the strong brothers, do not mistreat the weak brother. Do not be arrogant in front of them. Do not be loveless in front of them. Do not destroy them because these people Christ died for. When you are looking at a human being, do not look as if that you are looking at another animal, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. These people that you do church with, these people that you do small group with, these people that you worship God with, these are the people that Christ died for. Therefore, if you are sinning against them, you are sinning against Christ. I think lovelessness exists in the church. Lovelessness exists in society. Because we're not filtering human beings through the eyes of God and through the eyes of Christ. We have no trouble saying mean, nasty things against another human being, especially the brothers and sisters of Christ, because we're not filtering our eyes through Christ. We're not looking at them as through the eyes of Christ. We're treating them based on how we think they ought to be treated. And isn't that what racism is? Guys, we can blame institutions about systemic racism. We can blame history. We can blame all these things. But at the end of the day, racism is a human heart problem. In the history of humanity, there has always been a dominant class suppressing the lower class. That is, the, that is human history in a nutshell. It happened in Soviet Soviet Union. It happens in China. It happens, in, you know, it happens in capitalism. It happens. A group of people dominating the lower class of people. Why? Human beings are prideful machines. We have a desire to rise above. We have a desire for power. Legislation can make things better, I suppose. Education can make things better, I suppose. But at the end of the day, it's a human heart problem. And the only way that human beings respect another human being is for them to understand that every human being was made by God through Christ and every human being exists for God. And unless you understand that, there is no way that we can love other people. Paul says, if you make the other brother stumble, You are sinning against Christ. Those of you with proper theology, Paul says, yeah, you have the right to eat this food because idols don't exist and this food is, you can just eat it because it's created by God. However, if a weak brother sees you eating this food, and by seeing this food, if this weaker brother goes back to life of idolatry, then you're the cause of the brother stumbling. What does Paul mean? To be a, uh, don't be a stumbling block. Stumbling block is a rock that you, the image is you walk and there's a rock and then you step on and you trip on and you fall. That's a stumbling block, right? 
How are these strong brothers a stumbling block to the weak brothers? Once again, the weak brothers are, are, are fresh Christians just out of idolatry. Idolatry is more than just eating food. There are certain other practices that are associated with idolatry, promiscuity, or belief that God exists for you. There are certain incorrect practices that are associated with idolatry. So Paul is saying, if a strong brother eats food lifted up to idols, and if a weak brother sees this, they'll think, oh, if the strong brother is eating, food to, eating this food, maybe I can eat this food. And if I can eat this food, then maybe my old life of idolatry wasn't that bad. You see how that works? The weak brother, when they see a strong brother eating food, they are not just only interested in going back to eating food lifted up to idols. They're tempted to go back to their old lifestyle. Paul says, if you, by eating food lifted up to idols, causes that brother to go back to his old lifestyle, then you are sinning against Christ. You are destroying that brother, you are sinning against Christ. What is a modern example? Let's say drinking. Bible is neutral, in and of itself, it's, it's neutral about alcohol. There are certain places where God says, for example, Nazarenes, when you take a Nazarene vow, don't drink alcohol. Samson, don't drink alcohol. But there's also portions of the Bible, like Psalm 104. The psalmist praises God who made wine that gladdens the heart. It's there. Go, Psalm 104. Praise God for God made the wine that gladdens men's hearts. Jesus turned water into wine. Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach. So the Bible is neutral about its view of alcohol. Right? So I have no... I, in my opinion, I've, it just, it's, it's whatever, right? But, so I could drink alcohol, I suppose. But let's say someone saw me drinking, drinking alcohol. And this brother is from... A, he was former, a former partier. And a guy with a, who's a former partier... Alcohol is not just drinking. It's related to other behaviors that are related to alcohol. Doing unwise things, doing unwise things, saying and doing unwise things to people. Drinking alcohol, abusing alcohol, associated with other types of behavior. And if this brother sees the pastor drinking alcohol, they may in their heads thinking, oh, my pastor is drinking alcohol. So maybe getting drunk is not that bad. And if getting drunk is not that bad, then maybe, you know, the other behavior associated with getting drunk is not that bad. So they'll be tempted to go back to the old lifestyle. Paul says, be very careful, therefore. If you're using your freedom to stumble the other brother, you're sinning against Christ. Once again, be mindful that you are not, you just don't exist for you. You exist for God. You exist for your brother. Be mindful of how you treat them. Be mindful of how you influence the brother. You have to be mindful of another, beyond your desires, you have to be mindful of God and the purposes in which he has created you and that brother. Therefore, even though I may have no opinions about alcohol whatsoever, I will not drink in front of my church people. Not because I want to be a hypocrite, because, but I do not know whom I will stumble. And maybe, brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe that's what you need to be factored into as well. When you're drinking in public, especially with church people, 
at weddings or at parties or wherever it is. You need to be careful that what you do can influence the brothers and sisters. That goes around with alcohol, also just everything. Be careful. Be mindful of God. So Paul is summarizing, the way you love people, you just don't love people by emotions. You love people based on truth. Remember that all people were created for God, through Christ. Remember that the only way you became close to God is the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for you. Remember, the person that you are talking to, if you're, they're a Christian, they're the ones that Christ died for, which makes them one of the most valuable beings in the universe. Or even if they're not Christians, the person that you are you know, treating is made in the image of God. And sinning against the brother, sinning against the human being, is sinning against God. We need this truth to be in the forefront of our minds in our react relationship with other people. It has to be the forefront of your mind when husband and wives deal with one another. It has to be in the forefront of our minds when, when parents deal with their children. It has to be forefront in our minds when we deal with fellow Christians. It has to be forefront in our minds when we deal with any human being. Love wrapped up in truth. If your claim to truth does not lead to love for God and love for another human being, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul is saying your belief is fiction. James chapter 2 is saying if your knowledge of God does not lead you to loving, other, loving your brothers, then it's, 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 it's weak, it's, it's, it's false, there's no belief at all. Where is your knowledge of God leading you to? That's the question. Where is it leading to? What's the fruit of your life? The only way that you will see another human being clearly is through the eyes of God. And that only God can open your eyes to that. So when you go to your quiet times, when you study the Word, when you go to your small groups, pray that God will use all of this to open your eyes so that you will bear fruit of love, true love, not fake love like the world advocates. Let's pray. Father, we can love others. We can love you because you first loved us. All the laws of the New, Old Testament and New is summarized in these two commands you said, loving you and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That is what it means to be made in your image. That's the blueprint in which you have made us, to love you and to love other people. We can only we can only live according to our design when you open our eyes to you. Father, John chapter 17 says, Lord, truth, the eternal life is knowing you and knowing the Son whom you have sent. Eternal life starts with knowledge. 
And that knowledge, will, knowing you and knowing Jesus Christ, will make us love, people of love for you and love for others. And that's the only way that can happen. I pray that you'll bless us with this true knowledge. I pray that may we not be like the foolish men of the world who think just by agreeing with you that we, may, we are righteous. No. May you truly persuade us of this knowledge so that, Lord, that we will be a people of genuine love and genuine respect for another human being. Father, I pray that you will take care of this country. This country is going, it, it, there's many divisions and many anger and many injustice and many, many unrest. I pray, dear God, in the midst of this chaos, that your hand will lead this country through step by step. I pray that you give wisdom to its leaders. I pray, Lord, that you give hope to the afflicted. You give repentance, Lord, to those who are, who are wicked. I pray, Lord, that true justice will happen in this land. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are suffering in various kinds of suffering, whether financial suffering or physical suffering, I pray that you will comfort us. May the presence of God and the hand of God be seen in our lives. Father, we pray for this church, all these things. In Christ's name we pray.